So today we come to the end of our series on the Old Testament book called Job. We've been focusing on why do we face trials. Now here's an overview of what we've seen so far in this powerful book. First of all, in chapters 1 and 2, we learned that Job was the most wealthy man in all the East, but even more important, far more important, he was the most righteous man in the whole world. And what that means is that Job had understood that God could completely forgive his sins, which we now know God could do because of what the Messiah Jesus would do in the future. And so Job had put his trust in God and had experienced complete forgiveness for all of his sins, felt that guilt lift off in the presence of God come and fill his heart. Job was saved, he was righteous, he loved God, and God loved Job. And God decided to give Job the honor of displaying God's infinite glory, infinite worth to Satan, to all the angels, and to everyone who ends up reading this book of Job. And to do this, God brought massive trials to Job. The Sabaeans stole all of his oxen and donkeys and killed all the servants that were caring for them. Lightning destroyed all of his sheep and all the servants caring for them. The Chaldeans stole all of his camels and the servants that were caring for them. Then a massive windstorm came and flattened the house that all of Job's children were in, killing all of them. And then Satan himself afflicted Job with boils, these horrible infections from head to toe. Couldn't recognize him. He was just in constant agonizing pain. All these trials came upon Job. And Job, as you can imagine, he wept with grief and sorrow. Job had suffered great loss, lost so much. But Job still had God. Job knew God's love and God's glory and God's presence. And so through tears, he worshipped God and displayed God's infinite worth. That's chapters 1 and 2. And in chapter 3, as time has gone on and Job is continuing to suffer, Job starts to struggle, struggle deeply, wondering, what's the purpose of these sufferings and trials I'm going through? Saying, God, why didn't you just let me die when I was born instead of life like this? And so he was struggling. During this time, three of his friends showed up. They heard him struggling, wondering what the purpose of his sufferings were. And in chapters 4 through 31, Job's friends wrongly tell him that the reason he's experiencing these trials is because God is punishing his wickedness. The reason they said that was because they just wrongly knew that God brings trials to the wicked, not to the righteous. So if God has brought all these trials to Job, Job must be wicked. There must be some hidden sin that he's not disclosing. They were wrong. And we know that because in chapters 32 to 37, 
we meet a young man named Elihu, probably a teenager, humble, godly young man. He'd been listening to this back and forth between Job and his three friends. He's heard Job's friends give Job the wrong answer for what is the meaning and the purpose of his trials. And so Elihu corrects them and rightly explains that the purpose of Job's trials was to purify Job even more from his remaining sin so that Job could see God even more clearly. It's not that Job saw God physically, but the Bible talks about the eyes of our hearts where you you know God more deeply. You feel his presence more intimately. You behold him more accurately, and you're filled with joy as a result. The joy of seeing God. Now then, as we saw last week, Job 38, to the beginning of Job 42, God speaks to Job. After Elihu, God comes and speaks to Job. Now Job had proudly assumed in the previous chapters, you can read about this, he proudly assumed that since he couldn't see any purpose or reason for his sufferings, there must, therefore there must be no reason for his sufferings, which means God was wicked and evil to bring these sufferings to Job. So Job had accused God of doing wrong, being evil. So God corrects Job's pride. Job, do you really think you you know enough to conclude that there's no purpose for your sufferings? Job corrects, God corrects Job's pride, calls Job to humbly trust him, and Job does. And through all this experience then, Job at this point experiences what Elihu had said was the purpose for Job's trials. Here's how Job put it. He's talking to God. He says, I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Now I see, I behold, I know, I love, swept up into the presence of God like he had not been before. So today, we're going to wrap up the series by asking, first of all, two questions which focus on the two main truths that God wants to teach us from the book of Job. And then we're going to end by asking a third question, which the last section of Job that was just read for us, a question that's raised by that last section. So first question, a huge truth that we need to learn from the book of Job, and that is where do trials ultimately come from? I want to raise this question because there are people who say that trials do not come from God. God does not bring trials to his people. Trials come from Satan. Trials might come from other people. Trials might come from living in a fallen world. But our trials do not come from God. That is not what we've seen in the book of Job. Some of you maybe have been taught that. I hope you'll just think this through with us and keep studying the scriptures. That's not what the book of Job or the rest of the Bible teaches. In the first two chapters, we saw that all of Job's trials come directly from God. Remember, we saw that the Sabaeans, 
had stolen all the oxen and donkeys and killed the servants, and then lightning killed the sheep and killed those servants, and then the Chaldeans stole the camels and killed those servants, and then a windstorm killed his children, and then Satan brought boils to Job. So all these Chaldeans, Sabaeans, lightning, windstorm, and Satan himself. But look at how Job describes all those trials in chapter 1, verse 21. Just let this rest on you. Job chapter 1, verse 21, he says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in the very next verse, the author of Job says, In saying this, Job did not say wrong. This was right. This is true. And then look at chapter 2, verse 10. How he puts it there. Job says, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And again, in that very next verse, the author says, What Job said here was right. Now, the words evil being used there could be troubling to some of us. Let me make something clear that's extremely important that we understand. The fact that God purposes to have evil take place does not mean that God does evil or is evil. God is perfectly, flawlessly good. Never does evil. God is in sovereign control of every single thing that happens and what every person does. God is in absolute control. So God was in ultimate control of what the Sabaeans did and what the Chaldeans did and what Satan himself did. But when God has the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans and Satan do evil, it's for God's good and loving purposes, which means God has not done anything evil. Let's be really clear about this. God allows evil. He purposefully allows evil to take place. He's ordained that there be evil, but it's all for good, holy, righteous purposes. So God is never evil himself. He never does evil. And if you think about the fact that God is sovereign over everything that takes place, that brings great comfort to us. I mean, think about this. God is in loving, wise, compassionate, control over everything that's going to happen in your future. Everything. Everything is under God's control. Oh, that secures us and that strengthens us. And what that means is that when he then allows hard things to happen, which he does, we've seen that, right? Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But when God does allow hard things to happen, we can trust him. We can trust him. Even through tears, we can trust him. So no trial is random. No trial is purposeless or meaningless. Because you're trusting Jesus Christ and all your sins are forgiven. That means everything that's coming to you is love from God, including the trials that he brings to you from his loving and his wise hands. One of my heroes is Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor in London in the 1800s. His books are still being published today. He struggled terribly from gout, agonizing, excruciating pain. 
And listen to what he said about that. He said, It would be a very sharp and trying experience, a very difficult experience to me, to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by His hands, that my trials were never measured out by Him nor sent to me by His arrangement of their weight and quantity. In other words, Spurgeon is saying, it is so comforting, it is so encouraging, so helpful to know that every trial I face has come from God's loving, wise, caring hands. To think that that wasn't the case would be very difficult for me, and it'd be difficult for all of us. So where do trials come from? They ultimately come from God. That's what Job teaches us. Now that raises this next question. What is God's purpose then in bringing trials to his people? Why, God, do you bring trials? Sometimes God brings trials to us because he's going to deliver us from them and in that way display his power and his goodness and his love. Right? God loves to do that. And that's why it's always right when we are in the midst of trials to pray and to cry out to God to deliver us from them. Help us, Lord. Heal this sickness. Restore this relationship. Provide the job, the finances that are needed. It is always right for us to cry out to God to deliver us from the trials that he's allowed to come to us because often that's his purpose is to deliver us from those trials which will display his beauty and his glory and his majesty even more. But that's not what the book of Job is talking about. The book of Job is talking about those times when God does not deliver us from trials. What about those times? What about those times? And the book of Job teaches us, we see this in chapter 33 in what Elihu says to Job. When God brings us trials, when God brings trials to his people, who are forgiven, who are saved, who are loved, when he brings trials to us, one of his purposes that he always has when he brings us trials and the purpose that the Bible focuses on and wants us to focus on is that God is graciously doing that to purify us even more from sin so that we can have even more of the joy of seeing, beholding, knowing God more closely, more intimately, more really. That's God's purpose to purify us from sin even more so that we can see even more clearly God in Christ, love him more, know him more closely. Now let me explain a couple things that that does not mean. We could think that if God brings trials to purify us from sin, then that must mean that since Job had a lot of trials, Job must have had a lot of sin right? It's kind of like math. Two plus two equals four. It must mean Job had a whole lot of sin. But that's not true. First chapter tells us Job was the most righteous man in the whole world. And he had massive trials. So understand, big trials, lots of trials, do not mean lots of sin. 
I know we've said this, I think, every week, but it's so important. Are we clear on this point? Lots of trials do not equal lots of sin. That math is not in the Bible. It's not how God works. Also, this does not mean that every trial is targeting some specific sin. Like, what, what's the sin? What, what sin am I being targeted for? Trials purify us from sin in general, which we all still have, and which we will all still have until heaven, and which we all want to be purified from more because the more we are purified from that additional sin, the more clearly we're going to see God's glory shining in Jesus and worship him and know him and trust him, which is going to bring us the greatest joy, more joy. Though it's not that Every, tri- every suffering or trial is targeting some specific area of sin. Also, it's not that this purifying happens automatically. It's not just as you grit your teeth and just kind of muscle your way through the trial. I guess I'm being purified. That's not how it works. There's something that we must do. You can see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, and 1 Peter chapter 1. When trials come, here's what we should do. Remember the the pier and the super piling illustration? Every trial shakes something that our life is resting on. It could shake our health. It can shake our job. It could shake our, our friendships. Every trial shakes something that our life is resting on and reminds us how insecure everything else is except for Jesus Christ. On Christ, the solid rock I stand... All other ground is what? Sinking sand. And we still have security and trust in these other things. And so trials shake those, remind us of how insecure those are. So we, with our Bibles open and with prayer, crying out to God, we put our trust all the more back upon Jesus Christ, the superpiling. And that refines us. That purifies us. And we will see Jesus more clearly and be filled with even more joy as a result. And that's what Job experienced. The climax of the book of Job is chapter 42, verse 5, where Job is talking to God, and he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job had experienced that purifying work, and as a result, he saw God more clearly. It's beautiful. This is good. I mean, this is good news. The fact that God purposefully allows trials to come to purify us even more from sin in general so that we can see God more clearly. This is good news because seeing God in Christ is the greatest joy in the universe. By far, it's the greatest joy to behold God in Christ. There's no comparison. To that joy. That's why this is good news. Let me read you a poem. This is called The Thorn by Martha Snell Nicholson. She talks about seeing God more clearly as a result of trials. I stood a mendicant of God. That's just an old word for a beggar, somebody in desperate need. I stood a a needy beggar before God, before his royal throne, and bade him, asked him for one 
priceless gift, which I could call my own. I took the gift from out of his hand. But as I would depart, I cried, But Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift which thou hast given me. He said, My child, I give good gifts and gave my best to thee. How could it be best? Keep listening. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. Here's why. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. Those last two lines again. Don't don't miss this. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. See, we all have remaining sin. Every believer, we are not sinless until heaven. This side of heaven, we all have remaining sin, sin in general. And it's like a veil. And it can keep us from seeing God clearly, seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ clearly. That's what sin does to us. And so, in His great love and mercy, because He knows our greatest joy is going to be seeing God's glory in Christ more clearly, God gives us thorns to to pin aside the veil so we can see Him more clearly. Let me share with you how Linda Cantwell experienced this. She's part of our church, part of our home group. Here's how she experienced this a few weeks ago. Here's what she wrote. My back had gone out, and I was in a great deal of pain and could only lie flat on my bed for days. I was unable to stand or walk. As I lay there on my bed, I thought about Job and all we've been learning about handling trials. So rather than dwell on my self-pitying thoughts, I thought I would give it a try. I cried out to the Lord from the pits of despair and disappointment at being in this place. And it happened. His presence was tangible there in my room. I was overwhelmed with his love, peace, and joy. Then I was led to Psalm 139. I realized how personal and intimate our relationship with God is. He knows when I sit down and when I rise up. I couldn't do either at that time. He formed, this is all from Psalm 139, He formed my inward parts and knitted me together in my mother's womb, and I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I received promise after promise from Him. I had peace which surpasses all understanding. Powerful testimony. 
The veil is pinned back, seeing more clearly God in Christ. So every trial is a gift of God's grace. Oh, don't we all need to change our perspective on trials? Every trial is a gift from God's grace. Because while being a thorn, God will use it. He'll use that thorn to pin aside the veil so that we can see God's glory in Christ more clearly. So the book of Job teaches us two crucial truths. One is that every trial ultimately comes from God. He's in control of everything, including all of our trials. And God's purpose in every trial is to further refine us from our indwelling sin so that we can see God more clearly, have that incomparable joy of seeing God in Christ more clearly. Two crucial truths. Now, there's one more question, though, that's raised by these last verses in Job, which Len read for us earlier. Here's the picture again. Job ends with God restoring Job's friends, his family, his wealth, his health, and God giving Job ten more children. You can't restore lost children, but God restores ten more children to him. And this restoration is a beautiful display of God's goodness and love and mercy. But this raises a question. Does God promise to always restore our earthly losses with earthly blessings? Does God promise to always do that? Is the the hope that sustains us through trials, is that hope supposed to be focused on he's going to restore all the earthly things I've lost? Is that what our hope is supposed to be? Let's ask the question this way. What should we hope in as we go through trials? What is the hope that God wants us to have that will sustain us through the most heartbreaking trials? What should we hope in? And I want to raise this question because I I know some of us have been taught that when we go through trials and lose earthly blessings, we should believe God that he's going to restore them. We should believe God for restoration. All will be restored. I have to just keep believing that every earthly loss is going to be restored with earthly restoration. And that the hope then that would sustain us through trials is God's going to restore everything I've lost. Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what God promises? Now, one passage people look to who believe that's what the Bible teaches is in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 25. Some of you will recognize this verse where God says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Okay. Here's the situation. God had allowed locusts to come into the land of Israel year after year after year and has eaten all their crops. Harvest was just devastated. And here God promises to restore what the years of the locusts had done. So is God promising that he will always restore every lost earthly blessing 
that he's taken from us. Does God promise that? Some people believe that and teach that. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. If you've been taught otherwise, just listen and, and you search the scriptures. It's the Bible that's the authority, not me. My job is to help you see what I see in the Bible and then I hope you'll see it. I hope you'll see it. I don't think God promises that he will always restore earthly losses by giving us earthly blessings. Two reasons. One is that Joel chapter 2 verse 25 is not a promise made to all of God's people at all times. It is a promise given to Israel at that time, and that's exactly what God does. He restores it all to them, just like he promised. Beautiful. And God did promise them that he would do that for them at that time. But nowhere is that promise repeated to all of God's people at all times. That's how we can tell when a promise given to one particular person or situation applies to all of us all the time, and it's not found anywhere else. That's one reason. The second reason is we have many examples of godly people in the Scriptures who lost tremendous amounts of earthly blessings, and God never restored those earthly blessings to them. Let me give you two examples. Take John the Baptist. Remember John, he called out Herod for his sin, and he was imprisoned and beheaded in prison. Lost all of his earthly blessings, right? All of them. I mean, if you die, earthly blessings are gone. God did not restore those earthly blessings to him. And I also think of the example of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, who preached the gospel with boldness, and the people stoned him to death. Lost all of his earthly blessings. None were restored to him. Now, don't feel sorry for John the Baptist or Stephen. The moment they were face to face with Christ, the moment they died, they were face to face with Christ. And at that moment, all their earthly blessings were forgotten. Seemed like nothing. That's who our Jesus is. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Right? So don't feel sorry for Stephen or John the Baptist. They are having a great time. They are overflowing with joy. A great time. So God does not always restore the blessings he takes from us. You need to be clear on that. And the reason I want you to be clear on this church is because if he doesn't promise that, and if you think that he does, and if that's what you're clinging to, then your faith is going to be shaken if that doesn't happen. So what does God promise us? What hope should sustain us through the trials we go through? It's not the promise that he's going to restore all our earthly blessings. The climax of the book of Job is not those last ten verses where he restores your earthly blessings. The climax is the verses that came right before that in verse 5, which I've read before. Let me read it again. This is the high point of the book of Job. I had heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear. Now my eye sees you. That's where we say, whoa, what a gift to Job. What a gift. 
We, don't, we, we can say woe about the restoring of the earthly blessings, but the real woe is chapter 42, verse 5. Now my eye sees you. So the hope that sustains us in all of our trials is that God is going to use this trial to bring me even more joy in my Savior, even more closeness with Him, even more faith, even more trust, even more depth of knowing Him is going to be mine as a result of this trial. That's what God promises to do every time we face any trial. Again, it's not automatic. There are steps we take, but He will always use that trial and those steps so we will see God more clearly. See God's glory in Christ all the more clearly. And see, that is the best promise ever. Because we all have remaining sin and we long to be freed from it because the more we're, we're freed from our remaining sin, the more clearly we see Jesus and he's the best joy that there is by far compared to anything else that's in the world. By far compared to that. And your trials will bring you more of that joy. He promises he promises. Oh, he's a loving father. If he's going to give you a thorn, it's because he's going to use that thorn to, to, to put aside some of that veil so you can see him more clearly. Now, I would guess that some of you here this afternoon, um, you don't feel like that's the best news. Earthly blessings... Seeing God's glory in the face of Christ? What is that? I, I know what this is. And I want to tell you that if that's what's in your heart, you're in a dangerous place spiritually. Let me explain. Some of you maybe, um, you're here and, and you're not yet trusting Jesus as your Savior, your Lord, your treasure. And we are so glad you're here. But you're not your trusting Jesus. You've not put your trust in Him. You've not received forgiveness of all your sins and, and had the Holy Spirit poured out upon you, which makes God's presence real to you, or you know His love, you behold His glory. You've never tasted that. All you've tasted is earthly pleasures, these things over here. It's all you've tasted. What's this over here? I don't know, but I know what this is. And so it's hard for you to get excited about losing this for something you aren't even sure what it is. Others of you maybe have put your trust in Christ in some time past, tasted the pleasures of his love and his nearness, but over the years, your heart has grown hard. Maybe you've become lukewarm. Maybe you can't even remember what it was like to experience Jesus' glory. Maybe you can't remember. Maybe you've, you've neglected prayer and the Word of God and gathering with God's people to worship and hear God's Word preached. You've neglected that so much that your heart just now feels nothing toward God. That may be where you're at right now. And so some of you maybe feel like the promise of seeing God's glory in Christ more clearly, that's not good news compared to the heartbreak of losing earthly blessings. But I want to tell you, the joy of beholding God's glory in Christ is worth everything. He is the greatest joy in the universe. Knowing Him. See, there's one God, three persons. 
I trust we know that. And Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth, fully God, added a human nature onto him and took on a human body so that we could see in history God's glory shining from Jesus. You can read the Gospels, see for ourselves, look at the glory of God. That's why Jesus came to show us. So we can see God's glory as Jesus, fully God, was born as a baby. I mean, just imagine your creator has humbled himself to this, this extent to be here. See the glory shining from that. We can see God's glory as Jesus, as a 12-year-old, stunned the Old Testament scholars by the questions he asked as a 12-year-old and the answers that he gave. Whoa! They were stunned. As Jesus gave people complete forgiveness of sins, we can see that. The glory of God shining from him. Complete forgiveness of sins. Remember the woman who was so rejoicing in her forgiveness of sins? She, she broke in when Jesus was having lunch with this Pharisee, falling down at Jesus' feet, weeping with joy. Jesus did that to people. He's done that to many of you. Glory is shining from that. This is our Jesus. He healed a man who'd been blind from birth, just like that, by his power, by his authority. Healed, sight restored. When Jesus talked, taught, and people received his words, they were filled with the presence of God. They were transformed by his teaching as they put their trust in, in him. Jesus Big figure, crowds, thousands following him, he would welcome little children onto his lap and pray for them individually. He loves. Jesus, knowing what awaited him on the cross, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he suffered on the cross, paying for all the sins of everyone who will trust him willingly, voluntarily taking all that suffering upon himself, being punished for our sins. What a display of love and compassion and mercy for God in the second person of the Trinity to come and die on the cross to pay for the sins of us rebels. Love, compassion, glory shining from this. And as Jesus rose from the dead, See the glory conquering sin, conquering death, conquering Satan, sealing our salvation, emerging from the tomb, resurrected, the victor. That's our Jesus. To see his glory is the greatest joy there is by far. And this room is full of people who can attest to that. And that's what sustains our hope as we go through trials. God has promised more of him, more of his glory, more of Jesus. Lord, strengthen me. Lord, help me. This is for you. I want you. Yes, Lord. That's the promise that sustains us that he will always fulfill. So, those of you who are going through trials right now, let that be your hope. Let that be your strength. Let that be your comfort. More joy in your Savior is coming. And it will be so sweet. It will be so real. 
It'll be so rich that it will far more than make up for whatever losses you're going through right now. Take hold of that. But if the thought of beholding more of Christ doesn't stir your heart, if it doesn't fill you in hope, then like I said earlier, you're in a dangerous place spiritually. And God loves you. That's why he brought you here this afternoon to hear that. He wants you to know that you're in a dangerous place. His arms are open wide to you this afternoon. Because of Jesus, his arms are wide open to you. All your sins, all of them, can be completely forgiven through Jesus. That's what Jesus died to do. All you need to do is turn from your sin and put your trust in him. I trust you, Jesus, to forgive me. I trust you, Jesus, by your power to change me. I trust you and your glory to satisfy me. I trust you, Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you will experience what Job experienced. I had heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. You will experience that. Let's stand together. I'll pray. Strengthen those, Father, who are going through deep waters of trials right now. Strengthen them with the promise that you will use this trial to bring them even more joy in their Savior, the best joy that there is. Strengthen them, Lord, right now. And Lord, those who are not yet trusting Christ, right now, Lord, draw them to yourself, we pray. And Lord, for those who have drifted, who've, whose hearts have gotten hard, who've become lukewarm, oh Lord, right now, touch them. Touch them, Lord. Bring them home. Bring them back home. Your arms are open wide. Bring them home to you, Lord, we pray through Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.